I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house. Even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite- Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. Welcome to a preview of Season 24. I'm here with our executive producer, Graham Shedd, to give you a little taste of what's coming up in this notable season. One thing that's notable to me, Graham, is that this season will include our 300th show since Clear and Vivid began. Hard to believe. That's a lot of conversation with some of the most interesting people in a wide range of fields, including some people who don't exist, like the robots I interviewed last year. Which brings us to a special series of three shows we're starting the season off with. Since the theme of our show is connecting and communicating, we're taking a dive into what may be the momentous change in the way we relate and communicate in our history. More and more, we're in communication with something that sounds human, but isn't. Artificial intelligence is already affecting our lives, and it's making progress at a very fast clip, which is both good and bad. We're told by people who are creating AI that it can radically make our lives better, for instance, by eliminating diseases, or it can make our lives worse by eliminating us. That sounds like it deserves some attention. So we invited three people on the show, each with their own unique perspective on AI, starting with Fei-Fei Li, who's often called the godmother of AI, isn't she, Graham? Yes, somewhat to her embarrassment. She made a breakthrough that revolutionized AI when she realized that the key to making artificial intelligence intelligent is through the harvesting of huge amounts of data. And her personal story is inspiring. Born in China in 1976, she emigrated with her family to the US when she was a teenager. She spoke little or no English, but so impressed her math teacher at a New Jersey high school that he mentored her and helped to get into Princeton as an undergrad. He saw something special in her. It really started with physics. I was just, I don't know, like since I was a little girl, like 11, 12 year old, I just loved physics. It was my first love. And in hindsight, what happened is I think I loved that audacious quest to the unknown mystery of the universe. Like, Physics allows you to ask the craziest questions like beginning of space-time, boundary of the universe, the smallest particle of matter. And then in the middle of Princeton physics, I discovered 
Even the physicists themselves, like Albert Einstein and Erwin Schrödinger, they turn their attention somewhat to a equally audacious question. But that's not a physics question; it's about life. And I became so enlightened and enamored. I realized my own audacious question that I love the most is, "What is intelligence?" What makes intelligence? How do we build intelligent machines? And that shift in the middle of end of my college year was how I discovered AI. How did you get from that to concentrating on images? I think I'm naturally a visual person because even in my early childhood, my dad takes me to these natural excursions, and we look at butterflies, we draw the pictures of mountains. And there is this fascination of seeing. I find that understanding visual intelligence to be the most fascinating aspect of intelligence, and、uh, I think that is kind of a combination of serendipity. And I just got into vision. I think you, I've I've heard you say that vision is more than just a sense; that it's an experience. Vision is intelligence. Vision is experience. Vision is、uh, understanding, and vision is is planning. Vision is decision making. Vision is socialization. Vision is a very cornerstone piece of intelligence itself. Faith Ailey's fascination with both vision and AI led her to try to build a machine that could identify images. This was at a time in the early 2000s that AI research was sort of stuck. It's often called the AI winter. Her insight was to train a computer to recognize images by showing it lots and lots of images, millions and millions of pictures from the internet. Faith Ailey called her computer vision model ImageNet. That's the project that made people call you the godmother of artificial intelligence as we know it today. It seemed to have been a big. I know you don't want to. You don't want to congratulate yourself too much, but I've heard that said about you, and I'm trying to figure out in what way was it a milestone? Right. I think it's best explained with actually today's breakthrough in say ChatGPT. Right. Why is is are we seeing the AI breakthrough because we see powerful algorithms trained on a vast amount of data, the data of the internet. And that's where ImageNet came to play the pivotal role. Is that my students and I recognize the power of data? We hypothesized,、um, I guess, before most people, that AI will have a paradigm shift if we power it with internet scale, giant amount of data. It's it's a data centric, data first.、Um, Approach, and because of that, we were working on vision. So we want to make the biggest visual dataset. And in order to make the biggest visual dataset, we had this crazy idea of downloading almost all the pictures we can get on the internet back in two thousand seven, and organize it, curate it, catalog it in its completeness in terms of. Visual objects, and that's when we made. After three years, between two thousand seven to two thousand nine, 
we made a dataset of 15 million images across 22,000 categories, and that's out of cleaning up a billion images. What do you mean by categories? Um, categories are the natural way that humans conceptualize objects. We tend to conceptualize them as German Shepherds, microwave, you know,、um, a, a sport car. You know, of course, sometimes we think about my German Shepherd, your microwave. But in general, that classification of visual concept is a fundamental、uh, visual intelligence. Uh, problem that humans have worked on and solved, and it's very foundational to our visual intelligence. So, if you collect a great number of pictures under the category of dog, and a great number of pictures under the category of cat, the machine is able to sort through that and put a name on it when it sees a picture. Yes, and and mind you, there are hundreds of dog species. So in ImageNet, it's not just dog. We actually had hundreds of different dog: terrier, German Shepherd, corgi. We have even different kinds of corgis. So it's a lot more than just dog versus cats. <laughs> right, right. So you've got to give sub subcategories as well. Yeah, totally. I mean, a lot. Most of ImageNet is the subcategories. Right, right. Like I said, hundreds of dogs, hundreds and hundreds of birds and cats, and you know,、uh, many different kind of cars, the, the the buildings, trees, flowers. You know, it's a, it's a very very vast catalog of the visual world. By the way, Faith Ailey did all this while remotely managing her parents' dry cleaning business back in New Jersey. Today, she's a professor at Stanford. Where she's the co-director of Stanford's Institute for Human-Centered AI. I get the impression that there's a big effort on your part to make sure that the incentives, the motivation for working on AI and developing AI further, is that it benefit humanity. Yes. Because there's a tendency, I guess, for AI to be considered something that competes with humans rather than assisting humans. Yeah, this really bothers me because I think we need to be very clear what our relationship with tools are. AI is a piece of tool; it's a very powerful piece of tool. And humanity has had its struggle with the the, the relationship between us and the tool. But it's important to recognize that we should have the narrative; we should have the agency. In responsibly creating and using and governing the tool, so this thing about let AI compete with us, or let AI take care of us, or let AI control us, is just not how I see this technology. It's it's wrong to give agency to AI. It's important we actually take that agency. So people like me, I'm a technologist. I should feel responsible. For what I build, and、uh, in the meantime, I I hope that business leaders also feel responsible. I feel I hope civil society feels responsible. We we have to recognize that agency and responsibility. I'll be talking next with Eric Schmidt, who led Google for decades and has been a player in all the big AI developments. 
One of the things we talked about was a chatbot's ability to charm us into thinking we can trust it when it's actually making up outrageous lies. It's called hallucinating. Chatbots have been designed to be appealing and engaging, to sound like a friendly person. But just like a person who will say anything to be liked, they sometimes say things that are wildly untrue. That's when they hallucinate. And when they do this, they may be trying to make me happy, but what they're really doing is driving me crazy. Do we understand anything about why AI chatbots often hallucinate? Why, why do they go nut nuts like that and make things up? Do we have any idea? Well, let me give you a, a, a much simpler explanation than you might imagine. The chatbot is simply predicting the next word. And so it has been trained on a million sentences and it says, ah, the next word should be, you know, this word. And you as a human being or me as a human being, we think that it shows great literary force and wisdom, but it's just predicting the next word. It just does it well. And so, you know, you can fool it in all sorts of interesting ways. The, uh, Dr. Kissinger, who recently passed away, and I wrote an article, and we asked ChatGPT to give us the citations from his publishing published work and give it to us. It's a straightforward computer retrieval question, right? Look, try to figure out what he wrote way back when and give us the citations. And it produced five outstanding articles with his name on them, with great titles, which did not exist. <laughs> All right? So, so it's very good at making you feel happy. Um, but it doesn't have a good model yet of what is called groundedness um, or fact-based. Now, there are people, again, I can describe how to fix that, but the important thing is don't rely on this for anything really important. It sounds like it's so busy being engaging convincing you that there's something there to converse with, that it's too dumb to know that it's even lying. Exactly. What well, doesn't, remember, it's not human. We're using human terms, you know, he, she, so forth. And we have a lot of evidence that people are falling in love with their chatbots. I've seen examples of that. That's scary. You and Eric Schmidt explored several other scary examples. The one that worries both of you most are the avatars posing as real people, deep fakes. Right now, deep fakes are so convincing. I remember your description of listening to a fake avatar of Steve Jobs, who was so convincing to you. Well, tell me about your reaction to that. Well, the particular example was that Steve Jobs, who died more than 10 years ago, was in, in conversation this year with Joe Rogan, who's very much alive on his podcast show. And it just sent a chill down my spine because I knew Steve very well. It sounded like Steve, Steve's mannerisms, and it was plausible that he would say that if he were still alive. I knew his prejudices and his preferences well enough to say, you know, that seems reasonable. Um, it's just chilling. Um, OpenAI had a product which in 15 seconds could capture your voice and cast it into any other scenario. I heard one demonstration where this was cast into Martin Luther King's dream, uh, I have a dream speech, but the person was not Martin Luther King, it was current time. Just, it, it just chills my, it just, I don't know how to describe it any other way. It's a distortion in reality. Now for somebody who is not as focused on 
history and doesn't really pay attention to Martin Luther King and so forth, they could easily be swayed by that. OpenAI did not release that product for those reasons. Before we get into more of the dangers that, that I think will happen as a result of the things you've already talked about just now, let's not forget the pluses, the things that drive us, many of us, toward welcoming new work in artificial intelligence, the good that it'll do, medicine, climate change, science. You've written quite a lot about that. What are some of the things that we're really going to look forward to happening as this develops? Well, let me give you two grand challenges that I think are achievable in the next, say, five years. Um, the first is the development of an AI doctor. And this is an AI doctor that works with a nurse practitioner or health professional in a developing country, for example, and brings all of modern medical knowledge to that village or caretaker or whatever. There are examples in the United States of areas with relatively poor health coverage where the state of the art that you and I have is not available to them. Can you imagine that there is an AI doctor that works, they're, they're not a doctor by themselves, of course, they're, they work with the humans and the human becomes a much better per, can, can, uh, practitioner. And furthermore, it's done in the language and culture of the, of the country and the person you're dealing with. Give you another example, an AI tutor, which works with the um, teachers and whoever is a, a learning professional with students in any language and in any part of the world to get them to learn in the best way they learn. People learn in different ways, in different languages, boys are different girls, you know, you, you go, go through the list. Some people want more games, some people have longer attention spans, some people have shorter attention spans, but somehow gets them through it. Those two alone, right, a, a, a broad improvement of healthcare and a broad improvement of education would have huge implications for the next generation globally. Um, I'll give you some other examples. Um, any scenario where in science, let's think of chemistry, I want a, uh, I have a, a long, one of these long chemical chains that they, uh, is how chemistry works. And I want to make it more effective or less dangerous or more dangerous or what have you. I can have the computer go through millions of combinations and then test which ones are better. And no human can do that. Even the smartest chemist in the world, and they are brilliant chemists, can't go through everything, can't go through million scenarios at once. So that ability to sort through choices and then choose the optimal outcome, the technical term is called reinforcement learning, um, is a very big deal. It applies in physics, it applies in chemistry, it applies in biology. Uh, there are many, many examples where predicting the next word is also a technique that you can use to predict the next gene, the next protein, the next biological sequence. And it uses the same principles that were invented at Google in 2017 in the, in the famous now Transformers paper. So what does this mean? How about better batteries? How about more efficient energy distribution? How about better carbon management? Climate change alone, one of the greatest dangers to humanity in the long run, will be materially improved by this. Plastics, uh, paint, 
pollutants of one kind or another. We're going to look back on this period and say we were so ignorant because we were using such simple materials, components, and so forth in our built existence. And this is how progress goes on. It's great. And all of these are happening at a speed that is incomprehensibly fast compared to what it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago. After Eric Schmidt talked about both the good as well as the bad and ugly of AI, we wanted to find out what can be done to try to make sure the good outweighs the bad. So we turned to an old friend of Clear and Vivid, the psychologist Paul Bloom, who'd just written a terrific piece in The New Yorker about just this question. You asked him straight out, why don't we just tell AI bots to be good, to be moral? Yeah, I'm I'm glad to be talking to you about this. I, I agree with you. I think AI is the biggest news that's come along in a very long time. And it can imagine it transforming the world for the better in, in, in enormous ways. It could also kill us all. Or, or, or so, <laughs> Thank you. So well, I have to go now. <laughs> one of the two. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, I guess we'll find out. Um, and, and you're right. So one longstanding solution to the worries people have about AI, either worries that AI itself may turn malevolent in some way or, or accidentally cause harm, or that bad age agents could use AI to do terrible things, is to make AI moral. And this is sometimes called a lineman problem, which is you want to give AI a sense of morality, a sense of goal similar to what people have. And in that way, it, 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 will, it will avoid doing harmful and terrible things. If we just align AI with our morality, which morality are we going to choose? Oh, that's such a good question. That's an immediate, an immediate problem here. Because, you know, if, if I go to, it's, it's already somewhat aligned in that if you go to ChatGPT or Bing or Claude or whatever and ask it moral questions, it will give you answers that kind of resonate with our, with, with, with our intuitions. But your question of whose morality is a great one. If I ask ChatGPT, and I have done this, what do you think of two men marrying? It says, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. What do you think of a woman getting an abortion? It's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. But many people around the world, it doesn't match with their morality. They would say that, uh, that gay marriage is morally wrong. They'd say a woman having an abortion is morally wrong. So that's the first question, which is whose morality? And there's no way around it. If it's going to align with your morality, it's going to be a different morality than somebody from uh, raised in a very different culture and environment. And I think to some extent, I think we just skirt the problem. We say, okay, fine, our morality. Let's, let's connect it to our morality. And, um, and then we have various problems that arise. It turns out to be very difficult to program a machine to be moral and not have it, you know, choose to satisfy other goals instead. So the main worry, one main worry about AI is a sort of unintended consequences. The standard example, I think from Nick Bostrom, is you ask an AI to just make paper clips, as many paper clips as possible. And then in a fraction of a second, it feel, it figures out, well, if it kills everybody and turns everybody into paper clips, that will satisfy the problem. You don't want it to do that. Or would a moral AI stop us from factory farming, from killing billions of sentient creatures very painfully for food? Would it, would it intervene? Would it stop us from, from doing war? 
one of the one of the points of, of some stuff I've written is making the argument that maybe we don't want moral AI. We want obedient AI. We want it to do what we want, and we don't want it to kill us. But if it's too moral, it might tell us to stop doing a lot of things we're doing. Could you imagine what the military would think of military AIs, which decide to be pacifists or decide, well, this is an unjust war. I'm not going to, I'm, I'm going to shut down the tanks and the airplanes. I'm going to lower your security system because this isn't a war we should be fighting. Or just kill our enemy. Yeah. And the AI decides what's the enemy. That's, that's right. That's right. Maybe we're on, maybe the AI is very smart and moral and said, and decide, you know, we're the baddies. <laughs> I, I've thought it over and you're it. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're the villains. So people say they want moral AI, but when push comes to shove, I think both at a sort of global, general scale for military and industry and so on, we don't want it. And even at a personal level, I don't want it. What would I do? What would I think of tax software that's very AI generated and won't let me exaggerate the size of my home office? What would, what would I think of? What would I think of my self-driving car that refuses to drive me to a, to a bar because I drink too much? At least go back home and spend time with your family. You talk in your New Yorker article about Isaac Asimov anticipating this discussion we're having by decades. And he had three rules that robots should be programmed with. What, what are those rules? How come they're not working? Yeah, Asimov was first to struggle with the alignment problem. He wrote these wonderful science fiction uh, stories, like iRobot, which had these robots in them. And... He assumed correctly that people would worry about the robots being well-behaved. So he thought up three laws, and I'm doing this by heart, but this is the main idea. The first law is a robot should not hurt anybody or kill anybody or through an action, allow anybody to come to harm. So, you know, if someone's drowning, the robot can't just stand and watch them, has to ask to help. The second law is a robot must obey uh, all instructions unless it conflicts with the first law. So you ask the robot to clean the room, it'll clean the room. If you ask the robot to murder your next-door neighbor, it won't. And the third law is a robot should protect itself unless it conflicts with the second or first law. So uh, if, if somebody tells a robot, go do this dangerous thing, it will do it. But otherwise, it'll try to stay clear of harm. This is very clever. It captures certain ideas. It captures, you know, you, you want a robot to be obedient, but you don't want it to be a murder machine. You want it to, you want it to help people. You want it to, to not, not harm people. And you want it to protect itself. It's an expensive piece of machinery. You don't want it to kind of just walk off a roof for no reason. Um, it's really clever. But it, 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 people have looked at this. I'm not the first and said, but it doesn't really work. Um, it is, it, and of course, wouldn't it be strange if all the morality could be, you know, synopsized in three laws? So, for instance, the first law says a robot shouldn't, uh, through inaction, allow anybody to come to harm. But if that were really true, then if I owned a robot, it would run through the streets of Toronto, you know, helping people, giving food to the hungry, helping people, uh, uh, you know, out of burning buildings and everything it would never, never come back. It would be like a Superman spending all his time helping others. Um, what about the prohibition against harm? Well, would a robot stop me if I would try to swat a mosquito? Would a robot stop me if I tried to, to buy a hamburger? It's saying, no, you're, indirectly you're causing suffering to, to, to non-human animals. It turns out these oldies, and there's all these subtle 
moral issues that arise that people struggle with and you just can't make go away. This is even an issue right now, not science fiction, for self-driving cars. So self-driving cars often face moral dilemmas. What if, what if it's on an icy road and the brakes don't work and it's about to slam into two people? Should it swerve and slam into a brick wall and kill the driver? Does it matter if it was one person? Would it matter if it's three people? These are hard moral problems. And you can't make them go away by just appealing to these general laws. So what are we to make of this whole thing? How, what, how, how do you feel personally as you face the day when you sit at your computer and you wonder what it's going to turn into in a very short time? Part of a network that's either malevolent or beneficial or some unknowable combination of both. What do, what do you think? What do you think about what can be done to make the story end well? What, what can you do? What can I do? What can ordinary people listening to this do to make it mostly beneficial? My short answer is, I don't know. I don't know. You know, it sort of has two questions. I don't know what's going to happen. And, and it's sort of a, between two awful, ex, an awful extreme and a very good extreme. We could just average them out and say things will remain the same. But unfortunately, that's not the way things work. I don't know what's going to happen. And I don't know what we can do to make things happen better. I, I share your skepticism about saying, okay, let's shut down all AI research. I don't think that's possible and could be counterproductive. I do think it makes sense to sort of tightly regulate it and tightly watch it. I think we should be very sensitive to the social upheavals that are going to happen due to AI. So we're talking about things like it deciding to kill us all. But a more mundane issue is it's going to put a lot of people out of work. A lot. And it's funny because other technological advances put laborers out of work. This is going to put, I don't know, podcasters, professors out of work. <laughs> so, so, you know... Um, and, and, and it's going to be, it's going to be interesting. I, I think people, people who load trucks, they have a safe job. The idea of a robot, they're very far from that. People who write magazine articles, eh, I don't know. And so I think we have to watch, we have to watch for that and try to not, not necessarily stop it. These changes will happen, but, but deal with it. I don't, I, I feel sometimes, you know, well, yeah, as a concrete answer, we're coming up to an election season. I don't think politicians on the debate, doing their debates, are going to talk enough about AI. I think they're going to talk a lot about cultural war issues, they're going to talk about foreign policy, they're going to talk about, about budgets. But AI, we should treat it as important as it is. It's very important and we should treat it as such. So that's just the first three shows of next season, and there's a lot more to come. They range from a voyage by yacht discovering billions of ocean inhabitants that may lead to new medicines, a fun conversation with a husband and wife about why it may not be such a great idea to imagine we can colonise Mars, including the little problem of having babies there. Another old friend of Clear and Vivid, Robert Sapolsky, trying to persuade you that you don't have free will, as well as neuroscientist Tally Sharrett, telling you why you need to shake up your assumptions every once in a while. There's an exploration of the surprising history of punctuation and Tom Hanks. 
And by the way, that's the real Tom Hanks, not just a crummy deep fake. See you next time. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alder Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Remember the Thai cave rescue? What about the mission depicted in Black Hawk Down or the epic rescue shown in Captain Phillips? You've probably heard of all of these, but did you know that the U.S. Air Force Special Warfare played a pivotal role in all of them? These airmen are the most highly trained warriors on the planet. Other forces like the SEALs and Army Rangers call on them to provide skills no one else can. Not many people make the cut. If you think you can, visit AirForce.com to learn more. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house. Even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? you left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application.